This is episode 21 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and in this episode, we will discuss when to assess or screen for swallowing function post-extubation, what has been done in the past, what's being done today, and literally, what should you do tomorrow? And we'll also discuss a, a lot of cool ICU research. And today's guest is Dr. Marty Brodsky. Dr. Brodsky is an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at John Hopkins University. His peer-reviewed research publications, book chapters, and invited presentations focus on swallowing and swallowing disorders. Dr. Brodsky's clinical research is funded by the National Institutes of Health, studying the effects of critical illness and critical care medicine on swallowing and the airway and their long-term outcomes. His clinical practice specializes in adult swallowing and communication disorders. Dr. Brodsky is a newly minted ASHA fellow, a member of the ASHA Advisory Council for SLP, and a member of the editorial board for Dysphagia. He is a frequent reviewer for scientific journals and a member of the Dysphagia Research Society and the American Psychological Association. And I'm going to just add a few more plugs as well. Uh, Dr. Brodsky has some of of my favorite courses on MedBridge, on swallowing in the ICU and radiation safety. Uh, And I also want to emphasize that I really admire his work so much because he does have such a focus on clinical practice. He's seeing patients daily, and I think that's huge. Um, And he also just recently posted a blog on Dysphagia Cafe about transitioning to the ICU because I know there's a lot of people that have been asking for more information on acute care and critical care. So head over to dysphagiacafe.com and check that out as well. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. I cannot believe this is the last podcast of 2017. Hope you all have a an awesome, healthy, safe, happy new year. Um, but of course, if you're just like me and you're quite the procrastinator, then you probably need to catch up on some CEUs. If that's the case, don't forget, you can still log on to MedBridge, cash in on some hours before the end of the year is up. Uh, go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP, and that will show you some of the really cool features that MedBridge has to offer for that uh, $95 premium plan. So includes the patient education, uh, the mobile app, patient handouts, and just tons of really great high-quality CEUs. So check that out. Um, and also, if you're feeling extra generous this uh, holiday season, don't forget we have our Patreon campaign up that basically just keeps the lights on around here. <laughs> uh, these podcasts are very expensive, and the more listeners that we get, the more they charge us to do things, which is not really cool or fair. But um, yeah, I mean, if you think this podcast is valuable to you, if you think it provides you some value, if you want to give some of that value back to us, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Swallow Your Pride. Even just a 25 cent per episode donation is all that I'm looking for, and it, it would, would really go a long way. So your, your support would be, I'd be eternally grateful for your support. And I haven't done an iTunes review of the week in a while. So many people have been messaging me like, why aren't you doing them? So I guess I should do them. I know last time iTunes was like giving me such a hard time. So, all right, I will read one this time. So it says, please keep it coming. 
Teresa, thank you so much for all of the hard work you put into this podcast. I'm a first-year SLP graduate student with a passion for dysphagia, and I've enjoyed and learned so much from every single one of your episodes. Every week, my mind is blown by the wisdom, insight, and experience provided by you and your fantastic and knowledgeable guests. Swallow Your Pride is an amazing practical resource and complements traditional dysphagia education that has inspired me to think critically, question everything, and always be learning something new. You are a role model for a new generation of SLPs who are committed to and excited about evidence-based practice. This was written by Austin Twine. Austin, I don't know you, but if I could give you a gigantic hug, I would. Um, Thank you, but I don't think I'm the role model. All these people that I picked to interview, those are my role models. So um, I'm really just just the one that knows how to use the technology. But uh, all the guests I've had on, thank you to all of you. I look up to every single person I've had on this podcast so far. And we got so many um, booked out through March already. There's so many great people coming up that I'm just eternally grateful for. So, um, oh yeah, the show notes. People keep asking me about the show notes. So yes, you can still get them on the website at swallowyourpridepodcast.com. And then also remember that you can now text from your phone. Do not text and drive. I know you're probably listening to this in your car as you're driving. Wait till you park and then text the code SYP021. So you're going to text in SYP and then the episode number. You're going to text that to 44222. Okay. And that'll let you opt in and get the show notes emailed to you. So, and of course, Dr. Brodsky put together a list of really, really, really nice resources for today about post extubation. So yeah, I hope everyone has such a healthy, safe, happy new year. I'm so grateful for all of you and I will catch you all in 2018. So here is Dr. Brodsky. Hello, Dr. Brodsky. Hello, Teresa. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing wonderful. I'm so happy you you finally decided to do this. I I decided or you invited? Both. Okay. And I nagged and I, yes. (laughs) Yes, it was, um, I guess we could say it was two ways. Yes, yes, yes. No, I'm very happy to have you. And I know there's a lot of people that have requested for you to come on to because you have a really interesting perspective about things clinically and also the work you're doing in post-extubation. So I know there's a lot of people excited to hear you speak. So I'm thrilled to be here and, and happy to help in whatever way that I can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I did a little intro of you in the beginning, but if if you can tell them a little bit about yourself. I'm an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University. And I work in clinical aspects as well as in research right now. I'm primarily in research, but I do a lot of consultation with patients in the inpatient and outpatient area. So I keep my hands in it all the time clinically in that regard. In the research regard, I'm doing clinical research. So everything I do on a daily basis is hands-on with the patients. And whether I'm in the room being with the patient and doing endoscopy or video fluoroscopy or bedside evaluations or cognitive evaluations or anything along those lines, or I'm sifting through medical charts looking for the data and trying to figure oh, out fine. what it all means. It's it's all hands-on. Yeah, awesome. Are you're not doing any teaching right now, right? I'm not. Uh, strangely enough, Johns Hopkins doesn't have a program in CSD. So yeah, it threw me off when I saw you were an associate professor. I was like, hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I joined the academic club, <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. you could say, the research club. Yeah. That's how I got into it. It's the generic academic rank gotcha. as opposed to, you know, clinician one, clinician two, supervisor yeah. kind of yeah. hierarchy. When I think of 
professor, I think of teaching, you know, four classes a semester and things like that. So I have taught in the past. I just not yeah. doing it there. <laughs> That's all right. All right. What are we going to talk about today? A little bit of everything. Yeah. I have to yeah. Say. Um, it's all right. So I, I'm going to beat you to the punch this time. I okay. know you were going to come at me with, you know, <laughs> what's my favorite article or who influenced yeah. me or whatever. So I, I think right now would be a good opportunity just to segue Absolutely. into what what I'll be talking about shortly. Absolutely. But I, I'm going to go back a number of years here. So I, I started my career in the mid '90s. Okay. And strangely enough, this article came out two years after I was in my clinical fellowship in 1996. And I wasn't actually made aware of this article until maybe a few years ago. So I went definitely most of my career without realizing any of this was in writing. And of course, this was two years out of the gate for me, right? So, yeah. okay, so it's this little hidden gem to me right now. And I, I keep referring to this article and I, the author is, I mean, worldly famous at this point. And David Sackett is a professor in epidemiology and, and very well known across the world in many circles. So it's the information from this article. Strangely enough, there is, and this is based on, this is what got me thinking about the information that you've had on your podcast and some of the discussions that I've listened to. It's called Evidence-Based Medicine, What It Is and What It Isn't. So it's an interesting segue into the stuff that I'm doing because I've been doing ICU acute care kind of clinical hospital work my entire career, but this is what kind of put it into writing for me. And it was, yay, I did it right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, validation, yes. Yes. Um, and we all need validation every once in a while. Yes, right? yes. So, uh, so this was that article. And the, the text from the article just very simply says, and I, I've seen things along this line, Jerry Logeman actually had this thing called a cookbook diagram of how we assess swallowing. It was literally a flow chart in one of the books. I want to say, and I won't swear to it, but it was in an evidence-based therapy book by Carol Fratali, if I'm not mistaken, but I won't swear to that. I, I don't have that reference any longer. But the point that Sackett makes is that it's not, evidence-based medicine is not cookbook medicine. Right. That it integrates the best external evidence with individual clinical expertise and patient choice. And that's really what it is. Uh, and amen, yeah. I, thank goodness, I, I finally read this, right? So, you know, it, everybody thinks about this in, in the way that we have to, you know, this is what we read, and therefore this is how we have to practice. No, right. it's not about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. There, yeah. This is a three-pronged, three-spoked wheel, if you will. It, it, you must, evidence-based, how, the evidence that we have is information that we learn clinically that you can't read. That's evidence. At its right. grassroots, what you observe. We all, as we were undergrads, and, and arguably long before that, but <laughs> as undergrads, we were taught how to observe. And, and we were put into the child language rooms, uh, you know, behind one-way mirrors, and we were writing what the child does, right? Right. And everybody wanted to say, oh, the child likes the cupcake. Well, really? How do you know the child likes the cupcake, right? right. And what you could see 
The observation was the child smiled when the cupcake was given to him. The child rubbed his belly as the cupcake was eaten, right? But what that child liking the cupcake was the inference. It wasn't the observation, right? So at at the very least, we're doing that every time we walk into a clinic room and we're working with a patient, never mind a colleague. We're making observations. What happened? Period. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. So there's evidence there. We've got the evidence that we read in the journal articles. Duh. We get that. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, what about the evidence of what the patient tells us? Absolutely. Now, you know, this little thing in the corner of my brain, um, I'll give you the big caveat to that, is what you get from the patient is not necessarily what's truthful. A nurse told me a long time ago, and I totally believe this, I've believed it ever since, is that when you're, you're talking about social history specifically, you know, the husband, not to be sexist or gender specific, but the husband in the bed will tell you that he drinks half of what he actually does. The yeah. wife will say that he drinks double what he said he does. And somewhere <laughs> yes. in the middle is the reality. Is, is what he's drinking. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, not to be taken with a grain or even a pound of salt, but you need to consider the patient's wishes because, frankly, that's an observation, too. It is yeah. this three-pronged approach yeah. that is truly evidence-based medicine. And... I'm just going to blame the fact, you know, that Michigan State gave me a great education. And I had great instructors there. There you go. Because I've been doing this from the gate. Yeah. And I don't know why this has been a big debate. If I was taught it back in the 80s and 90s, why this is an issue now, I have no idea why that is. Right. And if anybody questioned it, here's Sackett put, in, put it in writing in 1996. Right. So, Okay, so there's my favorite article. That was, that was the one that validated. Good. No, that's good. Good. I like this. So I, I was very, very happy to have come across this article recently. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's great. I mean, I, as much as I want to get the evidence out there to people and I want people to know more research, I'll never, I'll never kind of forget how I feel, you know, and how how I want my patient to feel, you know, and I, I don't want to like toot my own horn, but I think I pride myself on my bedside manner with my patients and just kind of putting myself in their shoes and relating to, you know, I can't imagine what they're going through at that moment, but trying to give them some grace too. You know, I'm not going to bark orders at you and tell you, this is what you must do. And this is how you must feel. And you know, what, how do you feel? What are your wishes and what can I do to kind of come full circle and accommodate that on my end? So that's, a, that's, that's exactly my two right. cents. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right. It, it all needs to be considered. Yeah. And to be very honest with you, it's therapy practice. It's medical practice. You know, not to sound too colloquial or what anybody has ever told you before. There's a reason why they call it practice. Yeah. We're always getting better at it first. Yep. And second, there's a lot, a ton. If you were to even separate speech language pathology out of this and take a look at any aspect of healthcare. Yep. We don't have all of the information for all of the things that we do. Right. A little bit of this is shoot from the hip and let's see if it works. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, thankfully, most of the things that we do in speech language pathology isn't going to hurt anybody and it's not going to make them worse. The question is whether it makes them better. Right. Um, and we need to be efficacious. 
about this, you know, stop what's not working. (laughs) Right. Right. Change up the game a little bit. Right. 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 So, all right, well, let's, you know, I, I, you kind of have a history, you know, you have a story too of, of kind of putting yourself in the patient's shoes. I don't know if you want to share a little bit more about that. Uh, Yeah. I, I, kind of gave a nod, I guess you could say, toward it in a, a recent blog post that I had on Dysphagia Cafe. It, uh, I, I wrote about ICU and the personalities that go on in there and how to transition into it. ICU is just not for everybody. Right. And, you know, before I talk anything about the ICU, the segue that I had into that discussion is the fact that I was a patient in the ICU many years ago. And what landed me there was never expected. It was never planned. It was never something that was even I don't remotely. know that many people ever planned to be in the ICU. So <laughs> Yeah, it, it was uh, basically what happened. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to blow you out of the water here. Good. Um, I'm ready. Back in 1994... Just as I was finishing my master's degree, and three hours after I passed that 375-hour threshold that Asha (laughs) says, so I had 378 hours. All right, all right. I, you know, during my junior year, uh, I took up a pilot's license, and I was a private pilot for three years. Well, lo and behold, that summer I was working at a camp that was devoted to speech, language, and hearing impaired children, and I was doing therapy. I was a therapist doing an internship at that camp trying to finish up those hours. Yay, I got those three, right? Yes. Uh, Thank goodness for that. Yeah. So what ultimately happened was we had a night out, and several of the counselors and I headed to the airport, and we rented a plane, a four-seater Piper Cherokee plane. And this is in Traverse City, Michigan. The journey was supposed to take us from Traverse City, Michigan to Charlevoix, which is kind of this sleepy yacht town in northern, northwestern Michigan, northwestern lower Michigan, not the Upper Peninsula. Gotcha. We were supposed to have dinner, go back to the plane and fly back to Traverse City, Michigan, right along um, you know, Lake Michigan and the Grand Traverse Bay. It's a beautiful flight for anybody yep. who has ever done that before or is ever going to do that. So on this crazy summer day, whatever happened, happened, and we ended up crashing north of the airport. So, you know, the good thing that came out of this is the fact that I'm actually able to have this podcast with you. Yeah, um, yeah. And that I actually have a career behind me <laughs> yes, relative, yes. instead of the yes. alternate. Uh, right, you know, right explanation or the alternate conclusion that might have been. But basically, I was taken via ambulance. We were about two or three miles away from the hospital at the site of the crash. And just so that you know, all four of us walked out of that plane alive and well, and we're all doing well and prospering now. So there's no issues along those lines. Yes. But in the hours that followed, One uh, of the individuals stayed at the hospital and was treated for minor cuts and bruises. One was taken by life flight on a Learjet. One was taken by ambulance with burns uh, across 15% of his body. Okay. And I was life flighted on a helicopter with burns as well. 
in headwinds of 30 to 40 miles an hour, they beat the cold front coming in from the western side of Michigan along the 170 nautical mile route. We finally landed, um, and just in time, in fact, because they were running very low on fuel as a result of those headwinds. And ultimately, my parents supposedly, I don't know this firsthand, made it from our hometown in less than a half an hour. That's normally a good 45, 50 minute drive. <laughs> you can imagine. They took advantage of the headwinds as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> and the fact that yeah. there were no state police on the highway. Yeah, yeah. At some point during that time, I was intubated. And I was placed in what, I, what was then referred to as a medical coma. I don't think I've ever heard the term used since. <laughs> so that's yeah. not something that uh, at least we as Americans use, or at least the hospitals I've ever been in use. But I was intubated for 10 days while they treated me, debrided the wounds, did two grafting surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. So now the TBSA percentage, if you will, is right around 20 to 25% arms and legs. I spent 10 days in the ICU. I spent the next two and a half weeks in a step-down unit and uh, the next four days on the medical floors dealing with this. And, you know, the funny part about it is, and this is just the way hospitals work, the last four days I was on the gynecology wing involuntarily because of what we now know as post-intensive care syndrome I suspect, and my delirium relative to what in the world's going on here and not being able to keep orientation for anything. I could not remember the date to save my life, period. And trust me, I was asking people daily what today's yeah. date was. I could see the clock, but there was no calendar yeah. on, the, on the wall anywhere. At any rate, um, the nurse said, you know, I was finally able to get out of bed through physical and occupational therapy help. I was able to get to the shower and, and clean myself and individually without being wheeled down into a cart as if I were a piece of fish on the, you know, deli uh, side <laughs> of a grocery store. And, you know, I, they said, you know, pull the string when you're ready to come out of the shower. They didn't tell me what string. <laughs> And evidently, I pulled the wrong string. I'm laughing with you, yes, not at you. I know. <laughs> um, you know, you can imagine what patients go through, right? Well, yeah, in the yeah. shower, on the gynecology floor, uh, and think about the personnel and the sex of the personnel yeah. who work there. Yeah. I pulled the wrong string, and the wrong string was effectively the tether for the code button. Yeah, in the matter of not more than 10 seconds, I had probably 10, 12, maybe as many as 15 people <laughs> staring at me in the shower. <laughs> Let me tell you the sense of humility one feels <laughs> yeah, in that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so, I, you know, tons of experience on the other side of the tube, if you will. Yep. Um, yeah. Tons of experience, nearly a month at the hospital. And uh, I, I can speak very personally about those situations. And it wasn't until four years after this 
that I decided that I wanted to go back for my PhD and really get into this stuff. You know, to fast forward from there, you know, I went through my PhD. I went through a number of years in South Carolina, never touched anything ICU. So the research that I've been doing in this area has only been within the last decade at Johns Hopkins. That's where my true passion has been. And it's kind of the, a little bit of testament to tenacity and, you know, the long-term plan, if you will, of what I really wanted to do, not the short-term goal of getting a job, maybe getting married, having a kid, you know, getting on with life, right? And, you know, life is wonderful. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, none of that, essentially, all of that was hope and dream and optimism, but nobody expected this to be, you know, in the way that it was. And least of all me, I didn't know that I was even going to get out of bed, yeah, much less yeah. make it out of the hospital. So yeah. it was one of those things. And I, I can tell you straight up and personally, during the period that I was in the ICU, the step-down unit, even the floor, there were many things that shocked me about the care. Not the least of which is the fact that here I was in a plane crash, and immediately what comes to my head, and you know, right out of grad school, right, was TBI. Yeah. You know, where was the SLP to evaluate me and whether I had a TBI, right? So I had this paranoia, complete and absolute paranoia that I had a TBI. So much so that I figured it was latent even. And despite the CT scans that were done in the hospital, I got a little bit into fakery because I couldn't get the referral that I wanted. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I faked you know, some dizziness or some thing going out with my vision or whatever, to the point where I finally convinced the doctor, you know, get me the MRI, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I've had talk to, about knowing too much. Uh, well, yeah. that's what it was. And, and thankfully, you know, we confirmed that I have a brain and that, that nothing happened to it. <laughs> so that was during my clinical fellowship, um, at, you know, uh, 94, 95. So yeah, it, it was one of those things where, yeah, I, I knew too much and I needed complete, absolute and utter confirmation. There you go. And, you know, I, I guess everything worked out well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. From there. Um, but, it, yeah. but like I said, I never saw a speech language pathologist. That's crazy. And I was intubated for 10 days. And looking back on that, I don't know of any... ICU physician that would ever pass up a referral to a speech language pathologist who was intubated even greater than three days, never mind 10 days. Yeah. So I look back on that experience right now and quite frankly, I'm pissed. Yeah, I don't blame <laughs> you. I, I'm, I'm yeah. very upset. Yeah. Uh, Are you going to write a letter to the medical no, director? I, I mean, <laughs> As I said, I made it out of there alive and I can't look back, yeah. you know, 20 odd years and, and say yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it, these are the questions that have irked me and, and poked at me. And I guess in some sense why I'm doing what I'm doing right now, attempting to make a difference in the world in this regard. 
yeah. or at least changing medical practice and getting them to recognize what SLPs do and what yeah, they yeah. can do in the ICU and we shall not be ignored. Right, right. You know, uh, there is a reason why we are professionals. There's a reason why we do what we do. There are benefits to us seeing patients and they need to recognize that. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. So well, thank you so much yeah. for sharing all that. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a history uh, that I, I won't say that I'm proud of, um, but I'm proud it's of made what you I've who become. you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's why a lot of us get into this field and are passionate about what we do because we've all been affected by it personally at some point. But so, well, thank you again for sharing. Sure. So let's get right into. So you were intubated. So that is the foundation of essentially your work that you're doing now. That, so. That's exactly right. And uh, you know, kind of spinning off on this, we we batted around a number of topics, and I think one of the things that I'm far more passionate about on the clinical side of the world is getting timely assessment and timely screenings. So a number of the talks that I've done recently, um, people have been asking for information along these lines. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, offer my sense of the way the world works and where we've been and hopefully where we can be tomorrow and, and you know, make things better for patients, I guess. Yeah, sounds good. So I think the first thing is with regard to these referrals is... It's probably been within the last 10 years that I've been putting these ideas, you know, jotting them down on napkins and (laughs) talking with people (laughs) and, you know, trying to piece together this history that, you know, I I don't have the ability to comb every single journal to find, you know, the full canonical history, if you will. But the bits and pieces that I have just, they make a story. And the story is that, you know, whether we should be in the patient's room five minutes after they're extubated or we should be in the room five days after they're extubated to do the best evaluation has been a controversy for a long time. This first article that I want to introduce to you by George Burgess III is one of those articles where I picked up and I read and I said, shouldn't the argument have died right here? Uh, Fair enough. (laughs) um, And what's really interesting about it is the article is from 1979. Ah. So if you care to mark the chronology here, this was four years before Jerry Logeman's book came out. This should never have been an issue. Yet, for whatever reason, it was. Uh, and, And the data that he and his colleagues presented is that they used this substance, and I say substance because I'm not sure that we use this in radiology anymore, and we definitely don't use it in speech language pathology. But it's uh, a substance that's used, uh, what do they call it? Propyl iodine. And they had the oily formation of it. So it's one of those things where, you know, we've been using barium, and if we're not using barium, we're using iodine derivatives like omnipake and gastrographin and things of that nature. So this is indeed even a substance that I think most, if any, SLPs even know. I definitely don't know this stuff. I've never run across it. But with that said, they took a look at three groups of patients. Patients who were all cardiac surgery post-extubation, they took a look at them immediately following extubation. 
They took a look at them four hours and at eight hours after exhibition, three separate groups. Each of these groups were given 10 milliliter doses of this solution. And they were then taken down for chest x-rays. So back in the day, this was not done on cineosophagrams. This was not done with video fluoroscopy. This was done, you know, give the patient the contrast at bedside and have them either go down to radiology or do the chest x-ray, whatever it was, the, the portable chest x-ray. And they want to determine aspiration at that point by the coding and, and whatnot that was there. And they found no difference whatsoever in the amount of aspiration that was done in either three of these groups. So, you know, I walk away from this and I'm saying, well, if there was no difference in immediate versus four versus eight hours, why are we still debating 24 hours? <laughs> right, It right. doesn't make sense to me. So, of course, you know, people picked and poked and prodded and had to do the next best thing and, you know, continue to do this in real time with real fluoroscopy and endoscopy and other measures, Right. Well, one of the studies that went beyond that, um, we're going to fast forward time a little bit here from 1979 to 1995. So this is long after Logamin at this point, 12 years. And Delarmonin, a study that came out of France, where he stuck a catheter in people's noses and hung it down in the back of their throat in exactly the same way that you would do video endoscopy right now, the fees exam. The difference being is that there was no camera. It was just a catheter, um, sort of like an NG tube, if you will. And he injected 0 0.25, 0 0.5, 0 0.75, and 1.0 milliliters. So you can imagine, you know, I can't even fathom what anything less than a milliliter looks like. And to give you some idea of what one milliliter looks like, it's a drop. Literally anything that comes out of a baby dropper, it's a drop. Okay. So they were injecting these amounts of, I think it was normal saline, into people to determine the laryngeal reflex on post-extubated patients. And they took a look at these folks immediately after extubation and for seven days after extubation at you know day one, day two, and then finally day seven. And what they found in this study is that there were long latencies across all of those various volumes. There were long latencies immediately after extubation. But at one day, those latencies really reduced. Okay. So there's a few things to take from this, I think. On the first side we're completely bypassing the oral cavity and any sensory and sensory motor innervation that might happen there and the integration of what we now know as the central pattern generator has been completely bypassed from its initial stages, even from the point of bringing fork, spoon, or straw or cup to mouth. All of that has been completely avoided in this study. That's first. Secondly, we were using volumes that, yes, were very safe in terms of, you know, making somebody, you know, have a laryngeal response 
you know, the coughing, the choking, the gagging, whatever it might be, to the stimuli that we're given and that we're not drowning people to make them cough or choke or whatever it is. But goodness, I mean, like I said, I can't even, I don't know what a quarter milliliter looks like to know that it would even have an effect or, you know, anything worthwhile that I could take back to clinic and say, what in the world are we doing? <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah. okay, I, you know, I can get a little bit behind the one milliliter, possibly because Jerry Logeman was doing the, you know, 30 swallow swallow test with one, three, five, 10, 15, 30, I, I mean, and three trials of each and all of the rest of the stuff in her original work, right? So I, again, I can get behind the one milliliter, but I can't get behind the whole bypassing of the oral cavity. Well, at any rate, they showed a huge decrement in the latency that occurred from the immediate time of post-extubation within 24 hours. So if people weren't thinking about swallowing evaluation screening prior uh, in ICUs prior to 1995, now anybody coming into an ICU after seeing this study is going to say, I don't want to touch this patient for at least 24 hours. Okay. And then when you compare 24 hours with two days, there was a negligible difference. And when you compare either of those with seven days, there's a little bit more of a difference, but I mean, incrementally so that you probably wouldn't want to wait seven days. Uh, The biggest gain was in fact from that immediate post-extubation period to that one day or 24 hour time period. So again, reinforcing the idea that maybe we should wait, right? Okay. Well, there's a few problems with this and we've poked a few holes in that already. One of the other things I think that perpetuates this 24 hour rule, and I'm gonna use that loosely, is the fact that all of the studies coming out that are printed have these time periods where they're taking a look at patients either immediately or they're looking at them within, and that, that's a very big term, within 24 to 48 or even 96 hours, okay? And here's the issue, here's the rub, that I, I maybe many clinicians aren't aware of. It's not because they didn't get the referrals. It's because of research logistics that the researchers allow themselves the amount of time that they do to get in to see the patients. And there's really good reasons for this. Um, One of the reasons is that pure logistics in ICU once somebody is extubated, it's controlled chaos. (laughs) Everybody and their brother and their therapist wants at this patient. And this patient who was either sedated or at least calm and resting in bed with a tube in their mouth suddenly has a tube out of their mouth and everybody's in the room wanting to talk with this patient or everybody's wanting to move this patient to 40 different tests around the hospital trying to figure out what in the world happened while we were trying to stabilize you, okay? So getting in to see these patients is difficult, Not to mention the fact that here's a researcher, I don't care whether you're a clinical researcher like myself 
or you're a researcher who has never touched a patient in your life wanting at these patients, right? We are definitely low on the priority list. I can tell you that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) The fact that I'm working with, and, and shout out to the SLPs at Johns Hopkins that I do work with that help make the research more possible and more timely, I'm personally able to get to these patients a lot earlier through those partnerships. Uh, We can talk more about those partnerships later because they are absolutely critical, no pun intended, to the work that I do. So, you know, bottom line here is that when we read these time spanses of 24 to 72 or 96 hours post-extubation, then finally the researcher gets there there and they test something, it's logistics, It's research logistics. It is not us perpetuating. We need to see these patients 24 hours or later. And we need to understand that. So maybe nobody's come right out and said that, but I I, I want to be the one who says it. All right. Enough is (laughs) enough. You know, you know, there has been for a long time, my entire career, and I'm sure long before me, this concept of early intervention. Well, early is as soon as humanly possible. And maybe we don't get to see those patients during the time that they're orally intubated. Maybe the first time you get to see those patients is when they're either extubated or they're converted to a tracheostomy. But early intubation is as soon as humanly possible. There is no reason why we should be waiting 24 hours to see these patients. And there's a number of studies that talk about that. One of the studies, thankfully, I was, I was a part of this one <clears throat> when I was in South Carolina and working with Bonnie Martin-Harris, was an article that we put out in 2007, okay. in part spurred by the Delarminant article saying, we shouldn't be waiting this long. You know, what they found with these minuscule amounts is not what we see through normal means, oral means. Now, keeping in mind that we used barium and not food or water, okay, so this, all the, this was under fluoroscopy, we took a look at delayed initiation of the pharyngeal swallow in normal people, okay? So not ICU folks, not even a patient population, but in normal people, we found that the, the delays can be either no delay whatsoever all the way up to less than one and a half seconds, So to see delays of anywhere from five to eight seconds in Delarmanent's article, it's whack relative to what we're seeing in normal humans. So immediately you have to ask yourself the question of what in the world's happening with the ICU patients. And in fact, there's some research out there, and I I don't have it uh, cited in front of me, that takes a look at delays that last as long as two seconds when you use normal stuff and I, you know, normal, whether it's water or barium or whatever it might be, the delay is just a little bit longer. If you take into consideration passing the ramus of the mandible, Logman's old definition, right? We use the definition of initiation of the swell being the first burst of the hyoid in the work that we did. Um, so yeah, you've got to be aware of the different definitions that are out there and you've got to be aware of the different methods that are out there, but they're effectively all saying the same thing is that even in patient populations that are not neurologically involved, it's still less than two seconds to initiate a swallow. Okay. Is delay really that important in the absence of anything else? And the answer is 
Probably not. We all do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. delay is not the thing we should be concerned about. Yeah. You know, going forward from there. Okay. So that that's, you know, decades old of work. And here we are in 2017, not to date the podcast, but we take a look at, at other information out there. Madison Mock's work uh, out of the University of Colorado in Denver, they sent out a survey of speech language pathologists who are members of SIG-13. They took a section of them who work in the ICU. There was, I want to say perhaps around 1,000, maybe 2,000 folks who were identified uh, as such. They got about 900 responses back on the survey, so it was a fairly representative sample, albeit cool. yeah. somewhat, I think it was like 56% was the response rate, so... Yeah. Be that it, what it is, but it was a large number of people who responded to this, okay? 90% of the speech-language pathologists get a physician order to see patients. So immediately, we're delayed first by the order. Okay. Secondly, and not to be overlooked, the physicians are screening their patients for us to see them. Never mind the screening that the nurses or that we do after they've been screened. Okay, so there's two levels of screening going on here. Okay, how many levels of screening do we really need? Right? Right, right. Okay. Interestingly enough, 3% of the respondents said that they, no matter what, all patients in their ICUs get referral to speech language pathology. Now, I'm not necessarily opposed to this, and, and I want to be very clear. These are the ones who are post-extubation, not all ICU patients. Yeah. Um, and, and to give you some numbers, about 20% of patients are, across the nation are intubated in ICUs. Okay. Um, about a million patients out of the 5 million admitted on an annual basis. So 3% of those patients who are, uh, I'm sorry, of those SLPs, um, and those patients are getting referrals on all patients who are extubated. So, you know, not to necessarily poke at them, um, but maybe that's a little bit over-referring for the numbers that we have or that we've seen in the literature. Again, I don't know. Those are numbers yeah. that are out there. To that, in some sense, I say kudos to them that they're seeing those patients. We can make the determination later as to how to fine-tune that. Okay, right. but at least they're getting seen, right? Right. Okay. So 29%, nearly a third of the hospitals have guidelines for physician referral. Okay. So if you can imagine, I don't know how many of those actually have SLPs who are involved in that process. But now let's back up a little bit. It's kind of what I said earlier. Physicians screen who they want to refer to. And now we've got about a third of physicians who have created a screen for their screening, perhaps with SLP involvement, in order for us to screen them yet again. I'm not quite sure about you, but enough of the screening. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay? yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, so I, I think my point in all of that is that for those hospitals that do have guidelines for SLPs uh, to get referrals from patients, I would say the SLPs absolutely need to be the advocates here and say, I want to see your referral process. Show me the flow diagram or whatever it is that they use. 
And let's see if it matches current day research and current day evidence and the way that I'm seeing these patients and see if we can tweak this a little bit because I don't know what guidelines they used. Yeah. My guess is they may not have used an SLP to create those guidelines. Check it out and figure out what's going on because that's way too many who are who have hospitals that are dictating how SLPs should be referred. Okay. As I've kind of alluded to before, what they found on the survey is that the median time that patients are being seen is in fact 24 hours. This should come as absolutely no surprise to everything that I said earlier, right? And, and interestingly enough, and thankfully it trends this way, is that the range is between 18 and 24 hours. Okay, so that 75% of patients are being seen between 18 and 24 hours later. Okay, let's assume that they were seen. 60% of these patients are getting only a bedside or a clinical swallowing evaluation by speech-language pathology in the ICU. 40% of those are getting videothoroscopy. And what's real interesting about that is that it, there's a range, uh, I believe the standard deviation is 22%. So within just one standard deviation, we have a range of 18 to 62% of patients of the 40% who are getting video fluoroscopy in the ICU. All right. <laughs> So if your head isn't swimming with all these yeah, numbers yeah, yet, yeah. let me break it down for you. Okay. Not many patients are getting video fluoroscopy if they're in the ICU. That's yeah. the bottom line. What about fees? Are they getting, was that included? Fees was included. What's really interesting is that it is far reduced from there. Very far reduced, like single digits reduced. Yeah. And I believe that largely to be the the resources that are available within speech language pathology and get actually getting endoscopes. It's the training or lack thereof. And it is possibly physician awareness of we can bring it to you at the bedside. We don't need to transfer these patients. Yeah. You know, potentially, uh, you know, the uh, reduced referrals to speech language pathology for these evaluations because they're not aware of this kind of service. Gotcha. Okay, hang on one second, Dr. Brodsky. I'm going to stop you right there a minute. If you are interested in a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by SLPs for conducting fee studies, please check out EndoHD. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for a true high-definition fees imaging system, easy-to-operate equipment. EndoHD is a compact fee system that is in a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital. In the ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room, fully automated archiving with zero downtime, intuitive software with one-touch recording, immediate fee study review, customizable fees report template is also provided. So, Go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. Okay, what were you saying, Dr. Brodsky? Um, bottom line here is 
that if you consider the literature, and I don't care whether we're going to talk immediate 24 hours or even up to 96 hours post-extubation, if you were to consider the literature, the literature would support anywhere from 3%, check these numbers out, 3% of patients who are aspirating at the bedside clinically and actually need to be evaluated, all the way up to and including 82% with dysphagia. So, you know, (laughs) I've kind of implied, and I'm just going to say it outright, this is a messy literature. Yeah. You know, there's not much known because not much has been systematically taken a look at. So, you know, thankfully, you know, as Google Scholar might say, I get to stand on the shoulders of these giants and take off from where they left off. And the work that I'm doing is very well controlled and very well coordinated in this fashion. But again, all studies are not perfect, mine included. There will be flaws. I hope they'll be minimized in some regard. But I'm taking a better look at this. And other researchers around the country uh, in Boston and in Vancouver are doing that as well, at least in North America. Um, I'm aware of a number of groups across the pond in Europe who are also taking a look at this stuff as well. So a lot more attention has been given to post-extubation swallowing disorders. A lot more groups are taking a better look at it. We've definitely learned from the past, but okay, what do we do now, right? What can we learn now? What's the experience now? What can we change tomorrow or even today, depending on when you're listening to the podcast. Crap, after lunch, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, After lunch, exactly. Yeah. Um, And very simply, it is getting in to see these patients quickly. We don't need to wait. There is no reason to wait whatsoever from a swallowing standpoint other than mentation or cognitive ability, okay? And I, I got to give props to Deb Suter and Steve Leader and, and the group at Yale um, for bringing this to light a little bit. One of the things that they brought to light within the Yale Swallow Protocol, if, you, if you're not a believer in the three-ounce water swallow, at least listen to this part is what I would say. Okay. Does the patient respond to you? Are they asking questions? Are you able to talk and interact with them? Are they awake and reasonably able to respond to direction? Are they able to interact with you? And if they are, get in there and try it. That's effectively the screening that's done with the Yale Swallow Protocol. Is the patient appropriate? It's a very broad definition I don't necessarily agree with what they did or the definition that they used or even the materials that they used. I personally have not tested it, and I want to see a little bit more evidence along those lines. But I got to tell you, my entire practice for the last two-plus decades, that's effectively what I've been doing. I've been walking into the rooms post-extubation with these patients, and I've been interacting with them. Just a simple conversation. I don't need somebody to be able to be oriented to the date and time. We know better than that now. What I need them to do is be alert, maintain a level of alertness, and be able to interact with me, at least on some level. 
okay? If they can do those very simple things, there is no reason why we should not at least attempt a screening here. And the point is, the entire point to a screening is it's not diagnostic. And because it is a screening, it is limited in that regard. It's limited in the number of trials you're going to do, even if you do a screening, no matter what it might be. But the point here is that you're going to learn something from it. I'm going to go back to my earlier conversation. Observation matters. Yeah. Okay. What do you see? And the simple fact is that if the patient is coughing and choking and their head is turning and they're sputtering and all of the rest of that stuff, the, you know, the things that we know as these laryngeal responses or clinical signs of aspiration, great. There's the patient that's having problems. We need to keep their, our eye on them. And whether we come back later in the day with an instrumental exam, like endoscopy, or if you're very fortunate in some medical settings, the video fluoroscopic exam, go for it. These are the patients we want to know about. For those patients who are not doing this stuff, well, guess what? We learned something there too. And that is, they're probably safe if you did a fairly decent screen, right? Get them started on a diet. (laughs) Why are we sitting here and waiting some arbitrary number of hours for patients to go through that period of time after they have been hours at a bare minimum, often days to weeks without anything in their mouth to swallow. You know, the literature will support huge decrements in muscle atrophy during the time of intubation. And I'm talking head to toe. I'm not even talking swallowing. Head to toe, huge decrements in muscle atrophy. You think swallowing is immune? Probably not. But research has to elucidate that a little bit better, right? But I think it's fairly safe to assume that swallowing is not immune, that swallowing has very much the same muscle structure as we do throughout the rest of the voluntary skeletal muscle in the body, and it gets weak too. And I can personally tell you throughout my entire career and anybody who works in ICU, they can tell you too. So the point here is get in there and do something about it. Identify the patients who need it. If they don't need it, great. Move them on to an oral diet. Yeah. That's it. Right. There's no reason to wait here. Right. You need to get in. Well, thanks, Dr. Brodsky. Sure. Anything else on post-extubation? Oh. Send your piece? I, I've said my piece with regard to that. I, I... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I think if you know anybody wants to hear any more, or if you care to you know listen to me blab again, we can come up with another topic. Yes, but. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> no, I think that's great. It's always a hot topic. You know, I think Dr. Suter has done a really good job of getting people to realize that we don't have to wait this 24 hours. So, thank you for nailing that home too, and providing actual research to support it. Good, so. good. I hope yeah. that helps. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so another another segment we're going to introduce here with the Swallier Pride podcast is when we have our our lovely PhD researchers to join us. You know, I always love talking with with you guys because you have such an interesting perspective on things, both clinically and research. So, we're going to ask you for some words of wisdom that you would like to spread to the rest of the clinicians out there. I think one of the the most recent things that has um, struck me in a way 
that makes a lot of sense and I think people can relate to. And it goes, I think it circles back to my original discussion with David Sackett and what evidence-based medicine is all about, right? Yeah. Uh, here's a contemporary, you know, icon, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? He said the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. Now, what's real interesting about this and what, what got me thinking about this is you can believe or not believe whatever study you read and, and take from it what you will, okay? If they had messed up methods, if the statistics weren't great, if they didn't pull the right population, if there were flaws in their theoretical thinking, I mean, think whatever you want. The reality is, it's probably good science in that what they found in the results section are true. Yeah. Period. Yeah. It's the conclusions, and let me point this out, the inferences that they made in the discussion or that we make from the paper that makes the difference. So... I think one of the things that the reason why I keep on coming back to this is that all articles have something to contribute, that there isn't, it's not all bad research. Yeah. Is it all excellent research? Well, if all studies are flawed, then what's excellence? Yeah. Okay. I, I come back to another quote uh, that I've held on to for a long time. Um, and this is one of those fortune cookie quotes, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> it's a quote that, that is just very simply, perfection as a concept is inherently flawed. Okay? Stop looking for the best science and start looking for the good science where you can learn from it. And that's it. It's just yeah. that simple. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, and Dr. Steele mentioned that too in her podcast, just how every study has their limitations it. and it doesn't mean that they're horrible studies or that they're great studies. Every study has their limitations. And I think what drives me nuts as a clinician is when some people will just throw out an entire body, you know, because it doesn't align with what they believe in, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that it may not be good for a different population. It just... We have to be open to everything. So. That's exactly right. I, and I'll capitalize on that for just a moment. I don't want to hit this point too hard. But in every article, you know, just like every human being, we have our favorites, right? And we know what we know. So those articles that are cited within any article are what the researcher knows, not necessarily representative of the entire body of research. So forget the science, okay? Forget who did the article. Forget what the article is about and simply look at the bibliography, the reference list, okay? And across the literature, you may very well find articles that are written with strong slants by where they're getting the information from and whether it's geographically or it's, only the articles that follow their own thinking. We need to be critical in that regard. 
and consider those aspects of it. Because no, it's not possible to cite a thousand articles. And frankly, the journals are limiting the number of citations we're allowed in the first place, if for no other reason than to save paper. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, so the, the reality is that there may very well be a slant. I, and again, as careful as researchers try to be, as objective as they try to be, we're still human. Yeah. And we make these errors. We are biased beings. And yeah. that's just the way it works. So yeah. I'll, I'll get off uh, All right. that soapbox, I think, <laughs> that All I right. stepped on. That's okay. No, no, that's great. That's great. All right. Well, I think that's fantastic. Thank you so much for everything today. I think this was a great episode. Super. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening. Coming soon from Speech Science, Talking With Tech. With me, Rachel Madel and Chris Bouguet. What are we going to be talking about? Stop feeling so daunted by technology. Push the button. You're not going to break it. Help people start implementing. Maybe listen to our podcast and go, well, I could try that tomorrow. Conversations with the thought leaders behind all this. I'd also love to hear success stories. If it's working for you, then maybe it could work for somebody else. Go to tech.speechscience.org, subscribe to our podcast, and check that site for exclusive content that you won't see anywhere else. Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Ivan Campos, Lucas Stuber, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? 